Second Chronicles chapter seven. You know, last week we finished the book of Mark and uh, we're not going to be studying the book of Chronicles. We'll start in our new book next week. Only the Lord and myself know what it is. But next week we'll start in a brand new book. But this week we have some things to talk about with regards to what's going on in our world and our new sanctuary. So Second Chronicles chapter seven. Upon all of our hearts and minds this morning is the reality of what's happening down in New Orleans and Mississippi and in that area. And um, the biggest thing that you can be doing right now is praying, praying for God to move powerfully, praying for God to bring salvation. We know that the Lord cares tremendously for widows and orphans in their distress. Uh, another thing that's happening is we are connected with some Calvary chapels in the area. And so there's two opportunities available to you through that. <clears throat> One is you can give donations. If you want to give a donation to us for the relief efforts going down there, we'll get it directly to those Calvary chapels and 100% of your funds will go to ministry that's happening down there. The Calvaries are ready to move and ready to minister. Secondly, uh, some of them are ready to start receiving teams next Saturday. So perhaps the Lord is putting on your heart, I need to go down there and love people, care for people, help people. Um, as we saw people do when the Indonesia thing happened, we had some people go from this church. There's already one guy from this congregation that is on his way to LAX right now to fly out and be a part of the relief efforts there. If God is stirring in your heart, we can get you there prayerfully, Lord willing. We're partnered with Calvary Chapel Santa Barbara in that. And they've got a guy that's leading the team. So call me here at the church this week if you're interested in going. Uh, there's no rules over there right now. Understand that. Even the Red Cross, as they're training people to go, are basically saying, hey, we don't know how to train you for this. We've never seen anything like this. This is beyond the scope of anything we've ever dealt with. So uh, the Lord has given you some super gnarly gifts and strengths. He may call you over there to do some radical stuff. Another way you can be participating is through this. There's a man named Bruce Holland, who was a pastor at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara, moved to Texas to start a church. And he's been talking with the authorities at the Astrodome. You know that they moved a lot of the displaced people to the Astrodome, thousands of them. And um, they've given him permission to do church in the Astrodome tonight. So, yeah, praise the Lord. So tonight at 6.30 Texas time, he'll be holding the church service in the Astrodome. So 4.30 hour time, I believe. So we've got to be praying. Write that down on your hand or your lip or your face, wherever you're going to look. And make sure that at 4.30 this evening you're praying that God would anoint Pastor Bruce as he gives a message and would anoint his team. Let's pray for that right now. Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity for the gospel tonight in the Astrodome. And Lord, we ask that you would anoint those who will be ministering. That you, even at this moment, would be opening the hearts of men and women to hear your good news in the midst of devastation. Thank you that when everything the world has to offer is lost... You have eternity to offer us. Jesus, save people there. Save people tonight. Thank you for the way you are mobilizing and motivating and moving your saints, Lord. We just want to be responsive to what you would have us do. And now this morning, would you speak to us? At this moment in our history, would you speak to us and guide us and direct us? We thank you that your word is living and active. Pray that every word that comes from these lips this morning would be directly from you and not from me. That you would get all the glory here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here we are in our new sanctuary, our first Sunday here. And there's a couple very important things I want you to know. Number one is you see the platform up here. 
A few months ago, we had an evening service when the framing for the platform went down. And uh, it was just outlined. There weren't any little walls built yet. And we came and had a time of worship in here. And then after the time of worship and prayer, we took markers and we wrote on the concrete in here verses all underneath this platform. It's covered with the word of God. And the idea is we want our church to be uh, founded upon the word of God. We want the foundation to be the word of God. And so in a very real way, And yet, in a powerfully symbolic way, underneath this platform is the Word. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 that it's a wise man who builds his house upon the Word of God. And so that's the desire of this church, that it would be founded upon the truths of the Word of God. And here's the deal. If we should ever begin to depart from the word of God, either from seeking to obey the word of God or uphold the word of God or preach its clear truth, or if we would begin to move away from the inerrancy of the word of God, the authority of the word of God for all of our doctrine, theology and practice, if we would ever move away from the word, those words underneath this platform will be a testimony against us before God. You understand? Founded upon the word of God. Second thing I want you to know, Todd, can you come turn off this fan? Thank you. Don't look at him. Look at me. Exercise in self-control. Second thing I want you to know is that some of you are here for a service we had when the frames for the walls went up. And again, we worshiped and we prayed and then we wrote prayers on the inside of the walls. Remember that on some of the studs and on some of the drywall covered in prayers. And you remember that we were praying for what this church ought to be. And we were also praying for individuals of the community. And so there's names inside those walls. And you might remember the story that the Sunday after we had that service, a girl came to church for the first time whose name had been written in a prayer on that wall and gave her life to Jesus Christ. And so I believe that we're going to see people get saved in the years to come. Your friends that you prayed for, and when they come to this place and get saved, it is your duty to walk them to that spot in the wall and say, right here, man, right here is a name, a prayer for you. And now look, God has saved you. And again, it's wonderful symbolism because we're told in Revelation chapter five that the prayers of the saints are as golden bowls full of incense before the Lord. That is, the Lord sees our prayers as rising up before him. And it's imagery from the temple in the Old Testament. If you were inside the holy place in the temple, there was an altar of incense where there was always incense uh, rising up before the Lord. And so if you were in there, there would be sort of walls of incense wafting and lofting through the air and there's always that aroma and so we want to be surrounded in the prayers of the saints we want them to rise up before God as incense and so we've incorporated some powerful imagery the foundation of the word of God and surrounding with the prayers of the saints and should we ever depart from prayer as a church these walls are the testimony against us amen And now we come to a very famous verse, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Many of us are familiar with this verse, 2 Chronicles 7, 14. God says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them, I will forgive them, and I will heal their land. God says in our text, 
if my people, now he's speaking to the Jews, if my people, in the context that was the nation of Israel, but it also stands to reason that the church, you and I, have become God's people. We have not replaced Israel by any means, but we have been grafted in according to Romans chapter 9. We have also become God's people, and so the principles in this verse are applicable to us today. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Very important. God always says, seek my face, not my hand. We're to seek the blessor, not the blessings. You understand? In seeking the blessor, there comes blessings. But don't make the mistake, the mistake of seeking his hand when you ought to be seeking his face. God wants you to come before his face. He wants intimacy with you. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, will pray, will seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then God will do three things. He will hear, he will forgive our sins, and he will heal our land. That's what America needs at this moment. That's what Israel needed then. And that's what America needs right now, is that we would be repentant before a holy God. Regardless of what your opinion on the hurricane is, the cause or the lack of cause, or whatever you think about that, nobody could argue the fact that America needs to repent before a holy God. And the promise to the Christians is if we lead in that, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then God will begin a work of healing in our nation. <clears throat> so many of us are familiar with this verse, but are you familiar with the context? It's the same context that we're dealing with today when the verse was originally given 959 years before Jesus Christ. And that is at the completion of a sanctuary. Solomon was called to build the temple for the Lord, you'll remember. And it was on the day that the temple was completed and dedicated to the Lord that God said these words to the nation of Israel in response to the prayer of Solomon. So I want us to begin to look now at some details uh, in verse 11. It makes it very clear for us. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's palace and successfully completed all that he had planned on doing in the house of the Lord and in his palace. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or if I command the locusts to devour the land or if I send pestilence among my people, and if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now, the Lord says, my eyes shall be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. You understand that as the temple was completed, as the building was finished, and Solomon dedicated it to the Lord. And we'll look at, that in a minute. we'll look at that in a minute. God responded and said, when you get in trouble, this is a place to come. When things are difficult, when there's famine in the land, when there's pestilence, when you sin, when you begin to break off that relationship, the thing to do is return to the house of the Lord. And the Lord says, I will meet you. I will hear you and I will heal you. And that was always God's purpose in having a place for his people to meet him. Way back in Exodus chapter 25, God was talking to Moses and he said in Exodus 25, 8, 
Let Israel construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. And then he says later on in the chapter in verse 22. And there I will meet with you and I will speak to you. The Lord is the one who initiated there being a sanctuary. And God said that the purpose of the sanctuary was to be that he would dwell among his people, that he would meet with his people, and that he would speak to his people. Moses, I want you to build the tabernacle because it is a longing of my heart, said the Lord, to dwell with the people, to meet with the people, and to speak with the people. And so in obedience, Moses built the tabernacle and then Solomon built the temple, which is sort of the glorified tabernacle. But both the tabernacle and the temple spoke one thing very clearly to God's people. And that was that they did not have free access to God. You understand that there were degrees of separation in both the tabernacle and the temple. The worshiper would come hoping to approach God. And the first thing that he would encounter was a huge wall. And to get beyond the wall, there had to be a sacrifice that was made. There was no approaching the Lord without a sacrifice. Once you got beyond the wall, then there was the brazen labor where there had to be the washing that took place. And then there was the altar where the sacrifices were burnt. And you weren't allowed to go beyond that point unless you were one of the Levitical priests. Then you could go into the Holy of Holies. But nobody save one man a year, uh, I'm sorry, the holy place, but nobody save one man a year was able to go into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was, the cherubim above the mercy seat, where God manifests his presence. You see, the worshipers came and they said, there's a wall between me and God. I know that he's there, but I've got to go through all these things to get to him. And then even once they went through all those things, here's another wall between me and my God, and I can't get there because I'm not the high priest and it's not once a year. Those structures spoke of a limited degree of communion, but a certainty of separation. Now, when Jesus was upon the cross, one of the last things that he said when he hung there was what? To tell us die. It is finished. Paid in full. When the Lord uttered those words, we are told that the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It's as if the hands of God himself reached down and tore the veil of the temple from top to bottom. And what that communicated to the world was there is now free access into the presence of God through the forgiveness of sins with Jesus Christ. Never before in history had there been that access. That access is afforded to you and I right now. And so it stands to reason that we don't have to come to church to meet with God. That may be news to you. You don't have to come to church to experience God. A church is not the only place that God dwells. When you become a Christian, God places his Holy Spirit in you. He is in you and you are placed in Christ Jesus. And Jesus said, I am with you. I will never forsake you. And so as a Christian, you could commune with the Lord at any time, at any place. Isn't that good news? In fact, it says in the book of Hebrews that we can enter boldly into the throne of grace. That is that place that was behind the veil where only once a year the high priest could go and that was sacrificed in fear and trembling. Now that the veil is torn in two, we could just kind of... Here I am, Lord. Oh, so stoked to be here. Yes. We can enter in boldly, the Bible says. And it doesn't have to happen at church. But listen to me very carefully. Though you can meet with God anywhere at any time if you have had your sin dealt with by the cross... God will meet with you in a unique and powerful and special way 
when you gather with other Christians. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. Now, the Lord is already in your midst as a Christian. But what he communicates here is when two or three of you get together or several hundred of you get together, that the Lord is then there in a special way, in a unique way. It says in Psalm 22, verse 3, that the Lord inhabits the praises of Israel. And it stands to reason the Lord inhabits the praises of his people. That is plural. When we come together in plurality, corporately, as a congregation, and worship the Lord, the promise of the Lord is that he will inhabit those praises. Because another translation is, he is enthroned upon those praises. And so when we lift praise to God, God is faithful to manifest himself in our presence, in our lives, in our church, in our community, in a way that is unique to our gathering. He wants to dwell with us, meet with us, And speak to us. And so it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. Do not neglect the assembling of yourselves together, as some are in the habit of doing. But encourage one another, all the more as you see the day approaching. Listen to what the Word of God says to you. Do not be a Lone Ranger Christian. Do not try to live your Christianity outside of community. It is impossible. God has designed Christianity that it is to be lived out in community. If you're trying to be a Lone Ranger Christian, you think you don't need the rest of the body, you are in error. If that is a reaction because you've been burned by the church or the rest of the body at one time, you need to repent and get over it. We need each other. God has designed that we function as the body of Christ. And if you're not here, we're missing a finger or an eye or the mouth or the ears or the feet. We're lame and we're limping. We're not whole. The body is called to be together. And when we are, the Lord meets us in a powerful and unique way. And so here we are in our little tiny corner of the universe, little carpentry on this coastline, gathered here together. Kind of like the disciples, 120 of them in the upper room waiting for the day of Pentecost. And the Lord fell upon them that day with the power of the Holy Spirit. And God's will for us as a church, as we gather here on Sunday mornings, is he wants to dwell with us, meet with us and speak to us. But we need to be very careful this morning to realize that it's not about a building. Understand? It's not about a building. It's not about the drywall. The paint, the light fixtures, the sound, the stage, the cool floor. It's not about that. It is not about a building. God is not into buildings. God is into people. The building is merely a vehicle to get us to where we want to be. And that is in the presence of God together. Behold, and how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell in unity. In fact... God wants it to be so clear that he's into relationship with us and not a building that he threatened Israel and said, if you fall out of relationship with me, I will destroy the building where you meet. Look now in chapter seven, verse 19. The Lord says, but if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot you from my land, which I have given to you. Uh, if there's any question about who has the right to the land of Israel is just answered. 
then I will uproot you from my land, which I have given to you. And this house, which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And I will make it a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. As for this house, which was exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? And they will say, because they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they adopted other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this adversity upon them. There is very clear proof that God is not into the building. God does not care about the building. God cares about the people that gather in the building because he wants to be with them. And so he said, if you're not coming to meet with me, if you're not connected with me in relationship, if you fall away from me and follow after other gods, I will destroy the temple. And God did it once before Christ and God did it again in 70 AD, destroyed the the temple under Titus Vespasian, the Romans. He fulfilled that prophecy because the people fell away. And so as we begin to gather here, we need to realize that what God is wanting is to dwell with us, meet with us and speak to us. And here's how important it is to God. Look what he did when the temple was completed. Turn to chapter 5. 2 Chronicles 5. Second Chronicles chapter 5. It says in verse 1, Thus all the work that Solomon performed for the house of the Lord was finished. Now look what it says in verse 11. And when the priests came forth from the holy place, for all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves without regard to divisions, and all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Haman, Jeduthun, and their sons and kinsmen, clothed in fine linen, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. Cymbals, harps, and lyres. Listen, you're going to see in a minute, the biblical worship is very loud. Symbols standing to the east of the altar and with them 120 priests blowing trumpets. Hello? How's that horn section? 120 priests blowing trumpets. These were priests that were in the Levitical family anointed by God. They probably all blew like Miles Davis. 120 of them all blowing together with symbols. Bam! Bang! And sometimes people say to us, man, the worship is too loud in here. Hey, man, read the Bible, please. (laughs) Moving on, next verse. 120 priests blowing trumpets, verse 13, in unison. When the trumpeters and the singers were to make themselves heard with one voice to praise and to glorify God. That is why we sing together the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice, accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, and when they praised the Lord, saying, He indeed is good, and His loving kindness is everlasting, then the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. They finished the work, and then the people just began to praise the Lord. Loudly, 120 trumpets, cymbals, lyres, harps, one voice. They begin to praise the Lord. And as they're worshiping the Lord, what are they saying? The Lord is good and his loving kindness endures. Loving kindness, chesed in the Hebrew. It means loyal love. God's loyal love endures throughout time. He is good and his love is lasting. As they begin to say that, a cloud descended upon the house. And it was filled with the glory of the Lord. 
The glory there is a Hebrew word kavod. Kavod. It means majesty, riches, honor, strength, glory. It's, it's trying to put in some human terms what is indescribable. That something of the weighty presence of the glory of God fell upon the people to such a degree that they fell on their faces. It says that the priests could no longer stand to minister. They were on their faces before the Lord when he came. Why not our church? We're God's people. He's the same God yesterday, today and forever. Why not more of the Lord in our church? Why not 120 trumpets? Hands raised, one voice, one unison. Lord, come with all your glory. And yet not seeking his hand, not wanting to see something happen. Just his face. Just wanting to commune with the Lord because that is a response to his desire to dwell with us, meet with us, and to speak with us. Now, Second Chronicles chapter 6, verse 12. The story develops a little further. Solomon now begins to dedicate the temple. And it says in Second Chronicles 6, 12, Then he stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. Now, Solomon, um, Solomon is Shlomo in Hebrew. Isn't that fun? Shlomo. <laughs> so, King Shlomo, it doesn't sound as majestic, but... Uh, now, Shlomo had made a bronze platform. My sister used to date a guy named Shlomo. It's a true story. Now, Shlomo... New York Jew. Now, Shlomo had made a bronze platform, five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high, and had it set in the midst of the court. So here he is in the midst of all the people on this little platform. And it says that he knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward the heaven. The Jews used to, and the Jews still do, pray like this, where their hands spread out toward heaven. And he begins to pray. And in the next few verses, he thanks the Lord for his faithfulness and specifically for his faithfulness to the Davidic covenant. And then we pick it up in verse uh, 18. He makes a very beautiful statement, a very uh, humble declaration. He says in verse 18, But will God indeed dwell with mankind on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain thee. How much less this house which I have built. I love that he said that. Because the temple was glorious and so much work had gone into it. They had spent several years building this temple and it was the greatest thing that Israel had ever seen as a nation. And the first thing that Solomon communicated before the Lord to the people is, hey, this house pales in comparison to the glory of God. And there's no way that this house contains the Lord. Not even the highest of the heavens can contain the Lord. Therefore, dispelling the idea for us for forever that God is in a certain church, that you go to a certain building and there's the Lord, but he's, you know, not elsewhere. No, even the highest heavens can't contain him. So again, it's not about the building, but then what he begins to talk about is God's very obvious concern for people. So I want you to read the next verse. 19. He says, Yet have regard to the prayer of thy servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God, to listen to the cry, to listen to the cry and to the prayer which thy servant prays before thee, that thine eyes may be open toward this house day and night toward the place of which thou hast said thou wouldst put thy name there, to listen to the prayer which thy servant shall pray toward this place. 
And listen to the supplication of thy servant and of thy people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear thou from thy dwelling place from heaven. Hear thou and forgive. So he acknowledges that the temple doesn't contain the Lord. But because the Lord wants to dwell with his people, he manifests himself there. But then he immediately appeals to God's concern for the people. And he said, God, hear our prayer. He's absolutely persuaded of God's interest in human affairs. And so what he asks the Lord to do is to make the temple a focal point of communion with him. A focal point of their relationship. He says, Lord, what I'm asking is that you would have your eyes on this house day and night. And then, Lord, what we'll do as Jews, as when we pray, we'll pray toward this house. And to this day, uh, you see Jews who are praying, believing Jews, and they always pray toward Mount Zion. Wherever they are, it's like they have this internal compass. It's unbelievable. I've been on airplanes with Jews, and they get up for their morning prayers, and they face Jerusalem. I don't even know which way it is, but they know, and they face Jerusalem, and they pray. But here's what the idea is. The idea is that it becomes a focal point of the relationship. It becomes a powerful symbol in the religious life of Israel where Solomon says, okay, God, you look at this house all the time and we will look at this house all the time. And therefore, it's as if our eyes are meeting as if we're together in this one place because, Lord, we are. And so we're going to remember that and we're going to act upon that realistically and symbolically and we'll pray toward this house as you're looking at this house. Have you ever been in love? Have you ever been in love? But have you ever been in love and you say something to someone when you're going on a trip like, okay, listen, at night you look at the moon and I'll look at the moon and we'll be looking at the same moon. It's silly, but there's some sense of connection that is made. It's the same thing that Solomon is saying, Lord, put your eyes on this place day and night and hear our prayers. We will focus ourselves toward this place, not on this place, on you, but toward this place because it is a focal point for our relationship. Do you understand what Solomon is asking? Lord, connect us in that way. And so as we gather here in this church, our focus ought to be on the Lord. Our focus ought to be on the Lord at all times. Understand that when Israel would go up to the temple to worship God, they always had to bring a sacrifice. There was no worship without sacrifice. Nobody was going to do any business with God without sacrifice. And so the Jew knew that as he was going up, he had to have the bull or the goat or the sheep or the pigeon or the dove or whatever the necessary sacrifice for whatever was going on was. But he could not approach the presence or do business with God without a sacrifice. Now, for you and I, Jesus Christ is the sacrifice. Amen. He's a lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world and paid the price for the sins of the world. So the sacrifice has been made. But the principle remains that when we come before God, we ought to come with a sense of sacrifice to give. What do I mean? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 says this. Let us offer up the sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And verse 16 says, And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Let us offer up the sacrifice of praise. You see, Jesus Christ was a sacrifice that satisfied for sin. 
But we are to bring the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name when we gather before him. And so just as there was for the Jews, there ought to be a sense of preparation in your hearts. When you're coming to church, there ought to be the sense of, I'm, I'm going to bring something to the Lord. Have you ever brought a bouquet of flowers to your wife at the end of the day? Anybody? I'm the only one? Okay. Our worship leader, me and him, praise the Lord. You all need to come to the worship, I mean the marriage conference. But listen, when you walk through the door with that bouquet of flowers, it communicates very powerfully to her. Sweetheart, I thought of you today. And I took, I, I took time out to prepare for our meeting. And I brought something before you. And, and you come before her with the arm load and, and it communicates to her so powerfully. I've thought of you. I've prepared for you. And I've brought something before you. Honey, I love you. Now, it ought to be the same when you come to church before the Lord. There ought to be a preparation that takes place in your work. We're coming before the Holy God. And we're coming uh, together. And so we know he's going to manifest himself in our midst in a powerful way. And so I want to bring something before the Lord. I want to bring that armful, that sacrifice of praise. You see, too often, and allow me to gently rebuke you, please, in love. Too often we show up for church just so haphazardly. Like we show up to a party or something. Hey, hey, here I am. Okay, let's do it. Oh, yeah, okay, worship. When, When we ought to come in, with a true sense of, hey, I am here now to give to the Lord. That's what the worship time in the beginning is. It's to give to the Lord. And so I get, I get I'll just be honest, I get a little bit frustrated when I see people who habitually and always show up for church late. Now, I understand. I have kids. I understand when the world ends in the morning and your kids won't get dressed and they're killing each other and it's crazy and it's nuts and you're just happy to be alive. God bless you. If you make it to church anytime, I'm, I'm stoked. But, but what I think is wrong is the attitude of, hey man, it's just barely 11 o'clock. We have time for Starbucks before we go in. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. The Lord is already here. And the Lord has determined that congregationally speaking, when we gather, he's here to dwell in our midst, to meet with us and to speak to us. And for you to say, I have time for Starbucks and show up late in my mind is incredibly rude before the Lord. I think that attitude needs to be repented of. I do not understand why people aren't on time for church. I think it's the one thing in the world that we ought to be ready for. I think we ought to come not only on time, but we ought to come prepared to give to the Lord. The worship time's not for you. It's not a band audition. It's not to satisfy or to console or to entertain you. It is a time for you to give to the Lord that sacrifice of praise. You ought to come ready to give. Amen? Very biblical picture of church. Amen. Now, Solomon begins to pray, and he prays several things here. He prays several things for the people, but I want you to see in verse 28 what he prays. Verse 28. He says to God, if there is famine in the land, this is very applicable to us right now. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence, if there is blight, and right there between the words blight and mildew, some Hebrew translations have the word windstorm. Very interesting. Check out the complete Jewish Bible. In there it has the word windstorm. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence, if there is blight, windstorm or mildew. 
if there is locusts or grasshopper, if there are enemies that besiege them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by all thy people Israel, each knowing his own affliction and his own pain, and spreading out his hands toward this house, then hear thou from heaven thy dwelling place, and forgive, and render to each man according to all his ways, whose heart thou knowest, for thou alone dost know the hearts of the sons of men, in order that you may be feared, that we may walk in your ways, as long as we live in the land which you have given to our fathers. Very applicable to our time right now. Solomon simply prays before God, God, no matter how bad it gets in our nation, if there is famine, pestilence, blithe, mildew, windstorm, whatever it might be, what we want to be able to do is come into this house, you knowing our hearts, with all of our individual afflictions and pains, and pray and receive healing. That's what the house of God ought to be. That's what the house ought to be. We're told in the New Testament to rejoice with those who rejoice, but weep with those who weep. And that's what our nation needs right now. The nation needs to be able to come before a holy God and say, okay, God, here we are, where you can meet with us and heal us. Let me show you how God responds to that prayer. Number one, Second Chronicles seven fourteen, the one that we looked at, God said, okay, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and repent from their wicked ways, then I will hear them, I will forgive them, and I will heal them. God says, I'm down with that. You come into my house with all your afflictions in the midst of national crisis. I will hear, I will forgive, and I will heal. And then look what happened. Verse 1, chapter 7. Now when Solomon had finished praying... Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the house. It's the second time now. And the priest could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And all the sons of Israel seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house bowed down on the pavement with their faces on the ground. And they worshipped and gave praise to the Lord, saying, Truly he is good, and his loving kindness is everlasting. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifice before the Lord. And King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. Thus the king and all the people dedicated the house to God. Look at that reverence for the Lord. That, the God, that God would birth on our coastline a movement with such reverence for the Lord. For Solomon and the people, they were so in awe of God's presence in their midst. It wasn't enough to sacrifice an oxen or a sheep, but it was 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. We are to offer up the sacrifice of praise. That is a fruit of lips to give thanks to his name and not to neglect doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices. God is well pleased. If Solomon Shlomo took out 120,000 sheep, how fervently should we worship the Lord? How wholeheartedly should we bless his name? Church, we are called to gather in this place with one mind and one accord and worship the Lord with all uh, the Lord, our God, with all our heart, mind, mind, soul and strength 
That is why God has allowed us to build this little building in this little corner of the universe because he wants to meet us, dwell with us, speak to us. Amen? Lord, we want more of you. We want more of you. God, on this day of our two-year anniversary, we're so grateful for all that you've done. But Lord, we have the faith and the boldness to say more, Lord. More of you in our church. More of you in our individual lives. More of you on this coastline. More of you in our midst. Lord, why not your glory falling here? Lord, teach us to sacrifice. Teach us to prepare our hearts. Teach us to fear you in all reverence and in holiness. Teach us to praise you for Jesus. You are worthy of all praise. And Lord, in whatever way seems right to you, fill this house with your glory. We give it to you, Lord, best we know how, whatever that means, we dedicate it to you. For your purposes, for the furtherance of your kingdom, for your honor, for your praise, for your glory, we offer it to you. But Lord, we know what you really want in our hearts. So we come before you longing, confessing with our mouths now that we want more of you. Asking that you would make that a reality in our hearts. Come and meet us, Lord. We have communion up here. I invite you to come forward and take communion. I invite you to come and get on your faces, on your knees before the Lord. Prayer team will be up on the sides of the sanctuary. Let's seek His face. Perhaps today the Lord will allow His glory to fall upon us and to fill this house. Let's seek His face. If you need to repent, today's a perfect day to do it. Times of refreshing come to be present.